welcome to our show, The Islamic Dilemma. I am your host, Al Fadi. In our previous episode, myself and my guest, Bill Warner. Welcome, Will. Good to be here. Uh, we talked about the Quran, and we wanted to basically analyze the teaching found in the Quran in terms of the myth uh, that I like to call that Islam is a religion of peace. And Bill, I think we discovered, at least from the few verses that we went over, especially the sword verse, that uh, there is this uh, tension between what we call the earlier Quran that is revealed in Mecca mm -hmm. and the later Quran, or the second Quran, as you called it, the one that was revealed in Medina. Would you like to uh, kind of refresh on that? One of the things I would like to bring forth is due to my scientific background, I love to measure things. And one of the things that I did was I took the Quran of Medina and went through and pulled out everything that related to jihad. As I recall, 24% of the Quran in Medina in some way refers to some action of jihad. So the point I'm making is it's not just a verse. It's not just the sword verse. This is systemic. It permeates the entire Quran found in Medina. And absolutely, I would like to underline uh, what uh, Bill just mentioned. We're not talking about a one verse here. If it is one verse, I think the problem uh, is easily resolved. But uh, we're talking about a doctrine that have multiple verses. It is a doctrine. Absolutely. A complete doctrine. Absolutely. Uh, today, I would like for us to continue with our discussion by basically analyzing the Quran further as a book. Uh, Bill, when you have done your research on the Quran uh, way uh, from the beginning, when you started it, what kind of an impression did you get about it? In other words, uh, did, did you get the impression that it's a unique book, it's a divine book, uh, especially when you read it in English? It was, well, there are parts of it in which it appears perfectly fine. As I said earlier, uh, in Mecca, some of the surahs are like a hymn to God. There is... If Muhammad had never gone to Medina, if Muhammad had never become a politician, if we only had the early Meccan Quran, uh, I wouldn't be here. And you might still be a Muslim. <laughs> it, I mean, so yes, there are parts of the Quran which very definitely you go, you know, this is nice. You have your religion, I have mine. Let there be no compulsion in religion. Another statement of the First Amendment. Right. But it's but there's all these other very troubling verses. I would like to uh, just comment on uh, what Bill just mentioned. Uh, I mean, it's true. Uh, even if the Quran has only the Meccan uh, side, uh, we must be cognizant of the fact that um, the truth will always remain the truth, even if the Quran revealed itself to be a peaceful book. But that will be for another discussion, of course, when we do a comparative analysis between Islam and Christianity, for instance. Now. Um, one of the uh, things that uh, I wanted to know, for instance, when you uh, read the Quran in English, uh, do, do you get the sense of something unique about its language, the way it was presented? Well, of course, the book is so confusing. And what you and I and other How scholars so? have brought... Why is it confusing? Well, it's conf the main thing that's confusing about it is, is that if you turn to the Gospels, when you turn the page, you go forward in time. It is a story. Narrative, basically. It's a narrative. Right. Uh, and, of course, the, this, this is true also of the Old Testament. But as you read the Quran, there is no sense of narrative at all. Sometimes, actually, 
you reading along and it's like you're intellectually mugged. My favorite example of this is you're reading along in the Quran and all of a sudden this verse looms up out of nowhere. It was all right to cut and burn the palm trees. Like incoherent, basically. Yeah, and you go, wait a minute. This is the first time we've ever talked about palm trees. Whose palm trees were they? Why were they burnt? And why was it all right to burn them? Well, Bill, do you know that uh, sometimes the uh, Shiites in general and uh, many other Islamic scholars who study the Quran, uh, whether they are Westerners or actually a true open-minded Muslims, they believe that there are verses that have been split, meaning uh, uh, one part of it went to one chapter and the other went to another chapter. And, and we can show some examples later on uh, in other episodes about uh, such well, things. It's, it's incoherent. It is, there, there is not, you keep... It's like riding over a very rough road in the dark. You, you know, you hit a smooth stretch and then, wow, all of a sudden it's bad road. It is a very confusing book. And I think that endless numbers of people have picked up the Quran, tried to read it, and then they just go, it doesn't make any sense. Or they, get, they also get worn out by the repetition. Right. It just, it repeats itself over and over again. It's mentally exhausting. And that's really an excellent point you mentioned because in our book that we just published, The Quran Dilemma, and I would like to just show it to the viewers one more time, it's basically found in the Quran.com. In this book, we focused on volume one on the first nine chapters of the Quran, and we get asked all the time, oh, why, why the first nine chapters? Well, because of the repetition in the Quran, we figured the first nine chapters are going to cover most of the teachings that are found in the Quran, not to mention the first nine chapters, even though they're just nine, they're about 30% of the size of the Quran, something that just sometimes doesn't make any sense, that, uh, that most of the doctrines are found in those uh, uh, sections of the Quran. In fact, I want to add, uh, you did mention something interesting uh, at the beginning of our uh, episode today, that if you do not have the Medina Quran and you only have the Mecca Quran, that things would have been fine. I'd like to actually say this, things maybe would have been fine from a peaceful transaction and relational uh, uh, between Muslims and others. But it will be troubling to Muslims to know that most of the rituals that they learn to do are actually found in the Medinan one. Yes. So if they were gone, that means Islam is just a talk with no actions whatsoever. Well, it goes further than that. Using my little mathematical brain, one of the calculations I did based is that if it hadn't been for Medina, by the time Muhammad died, there would have only been 300 Muslims. And which would not have been enough for it to survive. So not only did Medina make him successful, it in its own way created Islam. Because without Medina, it would have been just another small religion that lived and then died. Well, Bill, I want to tell uh, you, know, you and, and uh, our audience how I, as a former Muslim, viewed the Quran and how Muslims today also view the Quran. And by the way, when we talk about Muslims, we're not specifically saying those who are scholars, who must know the Quran, who have to memorize it. Just Muslims in general, they're indoctrinated basically to believe certain truth, if I want to call it truth, about the Quran. They believe that the Quran is actually revealed from God. In fact, not only revealed from God, they believe that the Quran is preserved in what is called the preserved tablets that are found in heaven. In other words, they will tell you that the Quran actually was there for eternity. 
and it was only revealed in piecemeal to Muhammad. I think you made a, a comment earlier and was interesting. You said, why didn't God reveal the Quran all at once? I mean, what, what prevented him? I mean, it's there, right? I it, mean, it, just reveal it and we're done. One of the, the things about the Quran, some people hold that the Quran was created before the universe. But that's a dangerous doctrine, even makes problems for Islamic scholars because that means the Word of God is created. That means it's uh. separate from God. <laughs> you see, it's, that's why we call our show Islamic Dilemma because we deal with multiple tensions within the faith itself that demands an explanation. And in fact, when you go and you study some of the classical commentaries on issues like this, you'll notice that the scholars themselves are struggling. Because mm -hmm. if the Quran was created, that means God didn't speak before and now he is speaking. And if you were to say the Quran is eternal and the word of God is eternal, we may have a problem with the doctrine of, of uh, for instance, of the deity of Christ because the Quran says that Christ is the word of God. So we have this dilemma, which will make an interesting episode, by the way, that we will talk about it in a future uh, time. Uh, one of the things that I would like to show our viewer that support what uh, Muslims basically believe about the Quran. There are multiple passages in the Quran. This is just one that I chose that has a number of things about the Quran. This is what the Quran believes itself to be. This is found in chapter 26 of the Quran, verse 192 to 195. It says that it is a revelation from the Lord of the worlds, meaning God. It is also revealed to Muhammad by the faithful spirit. And I want to say the faithful spirit here is a reference to what Muhammad called later the angel Gabriel. In fact, uh, today I would like to this, elaborate by the way, is further. Not, Christians need to know that this does not refer to the Holy Spirit. That is correct. Uh, the word Holy Spirit in Christianity refers to the third member of the Holy Trinity. Now, in uh, the Quran, the word Holy Spirit, actually it's not the Holy Spirit, it's a holy spirit, meaning a spirit that is holy, which is a reference to the angel Gabriel. Another thing that the Quran teaches about itself, that it was basically revealed to Muhammad's heart. And here is an important fact here to remember. Uh, Muslims will tell you that the Quran is Muhammad's miracle. And the reason is, the claim is that Muhammad didn't know how to read or write. He was illiterate. Mm -hmm. Now, I find this puzzling, even though there might be truth about that. The very first verse revealed to Muhammad, found in chapter 96 of the Quran, verse 1, it says, read, is God teasing Muhammad? Right. If he knew that Muhammad doesn't know how to read, why would he command him to read? But that's, yet again, a discussion that could be carried over at a later time. There's something else interesting about this. We know when we study the history of Muhammad that he was a businessman. True. A businessman for about 25 years before he became a prophet and he ran caravans from Mecca to Syria. Where and the Quran talks about this. It, yes. Well, if he's a businessman for that period of time, is it not difficult to believe that he couldn't read an invoice, do calculations? I mean, to be a businessman and a successful businessman. Well, Bill, uh, you know, we do have evidence from the traditions, the Islamic traditions, that Muhammad did know how to read and even he signed a document at one time. We, we have that and we also have a hadith and we're going to be getting a lot more into hadith or the traditions in which I think he's near his deathbed, he calls for pen and paper. That is correct. What does an illiterate man need with pen and paper? Absolutely. But let's, uh, you know, take this claim at face value, at face value. for now. Uh, assuming Muhammad actually was illiterate. 
the idea that it was revealed to him, recited to him by the angel Gabriel. In other words, it is God's word verbatim mm -hmm. from heaven recited to the angel Gabriel, and then the angel Gabriel recited it to Muhammad, and Muhammad retained it in memory. He, in turn, recited it also to his followers. Some of them chose to write it down on pieces of leather, uh, papyrus, uh, bones, you name it, and others just retained it in memory. When we talk about the collection of the Quran, we're going to come across some interesting mm -hmm. incidents relating to how preserved the Quran is. And then it says that the Quran also in the same passage was revealed in plain Arabic. Bill, I have a problem with this. Because you did mention earlier in one of our previous episodes that the fact that it was revealed in Arabic indicates that it came to a group of people. In fact, I want to call them the people's group, which is the Arabic-speaking people. That were minorities that were found only in Arabia. This book was revealed to them because apparently... Throughout their history, they never had a prophet or a divine text compared to Jewish people, compared to Christians. In fact, I have a problem with this because Arabic was confined to a small area, and everyone around them in those days did not know Arabic. So how does the God of Islam wants people universally to know his message in a language that people will have a hard time learning nevertheless understanding. Have you ever tried to learn Arabic, Bill? Well, I know a few Arabic words that are technical, you but, get you but, I cannot, but I can't read the script. <laughs> it is really use real funny writing. <laughs> you know, Bill, um, people sometimes try to, in an honest way, learn Arabic so that they can recite the Quran. But the problem is, even when they do that, sometimes they even lack understanding of what they're reciting. They are at the mercy of those who are teaching them. Something interesting that I, uh, I learned. Uh, I am learning uh, to read the Bible in the original language, the Greek. Mm -hmm. Now, there is a reason why God allowed the Bible to be revealed, the New Testament writing, in Greek. Because the Koine Greek, which is the common language, right. was actually known in a large scale, in a large area of... All throughout uh, the entire Mediterranean. Regions, exactly, and countries. That's something that makes sense. Because if you want the message to be universal, you want the majority of people to understand it. In fact, even some people who spoke other languages, they still could understand the Koine. It's almost like equivalent to English today. But there also, there's something different else different about this. It does not insist that the language that it's in is key or critical to anything. That it, the Quran, one of the things that is peculiar about it as a book is its constant self-reference. Exactly. Uh, it keeps referring to proving itself, which leads you to believe that Muhammad had some problems getting people to believe what it was because it keeps advancing its own arguments about its own divinity. And this, this peculiarity about the Arabic language, and it's not just the Arabic language, it's also the Arabic peoples. And Correct. in particular, Muhammad's tribe, there's even a surah devoted to the Quraysh tribe, his tribe. Quraysh, yes. And, you, and so you, you kind of wonder... There's a, it claims to be both universal, but it's very provincial, in very fact, provincial. In fact, to add to what you mentioned, uh, when we talk about the, uh, the history of collecting the Quran, we're going to discover that the Quran we have today is actually in the Quraysh dialect. And by the way, this dialect doesn't exist anymore. Really? It's a dialect that is gone. So not only we have a trouble by having a, a language 
that is unique to a specific group of people, but also it's written in a language that even those people today who speak Arabic struggle sometimes in understanding it. I want to move on to another passage uh, that shows even though the Quran was revealed in an Arabic language, there is a universal message in there, meaning that it demands that people of all areas and all nations and all tribes that must follow its teachings. Uh, for instance, we get to one of the most famous verses in the Quran. Chapter 3, verse 85 says, Anyone who desires a religion other than Islam, it shall not be accepted from him. Bill, this is very clear. Mm -hmm. It says right here, and whoever, in other translations, anyone, basically, and the only religion is Islam. So how can Islam claims that it did not come to compel people to accept it as a religion when the fact is very clear that no other religions will be accepted. Now, if Islam is a religion of peace, doesn't that mean that it should really invite people to a peaceful abode when there is some eternality to it? Well, not only did it not invite them peacefully, we know from the history of Muhammad that he attacked the Jews. He attacked the Christians. That is, this, it shall not be accepted, was not just an intellectual idea. This force was involved. But when I was a Muslim, I would have told you that it was in self-defense that Muhammad attacked the Jews and the Christians. Well, he certainly had to leave Medina and go a far peace to defend things of people who had never been to his hometown. If it was defensive, why was he going all the way to Tabuk? How do you say Tabuk, yes. Tabuk, to right. attack the Christians. And we know from this story that it was a long, hard, hot ride. Absolutely. It took a lot of work to go defend himself in another country. In fact, it took a lot of work for Muslims to defend themselves in North Africa and all the way to the borders of They India. kept on reaching out further and further to defend themselves. Very good. <laughs> all the way to the southern part of Spain. Exactly. Now, let me add something interesting about the Tabuk uh, uh, battle. Not only he went there to uh, fight any uh, remnants of the Jews that left there to fight all the Christians, to fight even some of the Romans that existed in that area. One of the things that Muhammad used in that battle to entice his people to go by telling him that their women are ah. yellow, meaning they're blonde and they're white skinned. Now, that's something that should get people who are chauvinistic, basically, to go and fight for Muhammad. Well, we also know that Muhammad's favorite concubine, or as I call it, sex slave, was a basically a white woman from Egypt, Mary. Exactly. Her, she, Coptic, was she was Coptic, yes. and she was described as being fair, that right. is, light-skinned. Right. Uh, I think uh, this will make a very interesting discussion when we talk about <laughs> the life of Muhammad. I would like to also uh, move on to another verse, uh, if we uh, could, so I can show my audience that Islam keeps insisting that its message is universal, that it came to prevail, in this case, over other religions. We find this in chapter 9, verse 33. As we mentioned, chapter 9 is an infamous chapter. It's the last in one, fact, too. In fact, if we want to understand the teachings behind chapter 9, I invite you, of course, to go to Bill's website. You can go to my blog, uh, thequorandilemma.com, and you can go to our book also, The Quran Dilemma, and we have basically dedicated an entire uh, uh, chapter in the book to analyze chapter 9 and its dealings with people of other faith. In this verse, for instance, it says, He, meaning God, 
It is who sent his messenger, Muhammad, with guidance and religion of truth, which is the Quran and basically Islam, that he might cause it to prevail over all religions. This is clear to me that other religions are not acceptable, basically. In other words, if you don't follow Islam, you're toast. You're to but not just in the sense of what's going to happen after you die, in the sense of a political action in this life. True. And that's, that to me is the most important part, that uh, it's going to happen now. I remember, um, you know, in our first episode, you mentioned that to understand Islam, you really must understand the life of the Prophet. Precisely. And by understanding the life of the Prophet, you will begin to get a clearer idea of the doctrine of Islam in general as a religion. And also, the Quran works together with Muhammad's biography and his own teachings. All of these that you call the trilogy in your website, which I like that terminology, do certainly serve as a complete package Mm -hmm. that will give you a clear understanding of where Islam is coming from and where is it headed. In other words, what is its political agenda? I want to show an example of some of the teachings of Muhammad because sometimes we're taught that, you know, these verses that you're reading, you're really taking them out of context. Uh, they do not talk of violence. They do not talk of universality in a way that you're taking it. Well, let's take an, an example about some of Muhammad's hadith. And by the way, let's tell our audience what hadith is. The hadith, or the traditions of Muhammad, are overwhelmingly important. As a matter of fact, to be a Muslim, when you read in the Quran, it is not possible to do any of the five pillars based on the information in the Quran. But even more than that, we see the importance of the traditions of Muhammad. There are 91 verses in the Quran which say that every Muslim is to follow the words and action of Muhammad. And part of those say, if you don't do that, you're going to hell. So it is, it, the Quran right. is emphatic about the need for Muhammad. In fact, one of the verses will say, whatever the Prophet gave to you, you must follow. Exactly. Uh, so Muhammad basically is raised uh, and put at the same par with the God of Islam. His commands and the commands of the God of Islam are basically identical because you are commanded now to follow. Now let's take a look at one of Muhammad's own statements, the so-called mm -hmm. hadith. Uh, and uh, we're going to show this on the screen. Uh, this hadith is found in what we call Sahih al-Bukhari. And as Bill mentioned, al-Bukhari is one of the infamous collector of this hadith. Let me add that he collected these sayings of the Prophet almost 150 years after the life of the Prophet. Whatever that means, I think you're smart enough to figure that out. Uh, sahih means that it's really a, uh, a sanctioned, a good collection that is authoritative, that is approved. Uh, uh, may I add also that in this hadith collection, we have about approximately 7,000 hadith. Uh, almost uh, uh, 3,000 of those are kind of like the same story. Mm -hmm. So you take that out, you're left with 4,000 hadith. But in order for Bukhari to collect those 7,000, he went through almost half a million mm -hmm. sayings, tracing it all the way back to the Prophet, discounting uh, some of them, discrediting others, uh, claiming that some of those narrators were actually liars or uh, uh, untrustworthy, and there were certain measures that he had to take. One of those sayings, as we can see here, says that Allah's messenger, meaning Muhammad, said, I, meaning I, Muhammad, have been ordered to fight. And I want to underline the word fight, because in Arabic it talks about physical fighting. To fight the people. Which people? All the people. 
anyone who resists Muhammad, who stands against his teachings, who stands against his message of spreading Islam. So it's all the people until what? Until they say, the Arabic is la ilaha illallah, which is in English, none has the right to be worshipped but Allah, who is the God of Islam. What is the implication of something like this, Bill? Uh, it says I'm in trouble. <laughs> Why are you in trouble? Well, because I don't believe Allah is the only one that should be worshipped. And it's not this fight we're going to do is not that I'm to be debated with. This is not an intellectual fight or a spiritual fight. This is fighting in the sense of the U.S. Marines. Well, certainly, you know, uh, the fact that Muhammad claims that his God is Allah is actually something, of course, could be disputed because if Allah is the same God that claimed to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and Moses, then we can definitely look at his characteristics in the Bible compared to his characteristic in the Quran, and we have ourselves a vast difference between the two. But the point I'm trying to make as Bill mentioned, that Muslims are commanded to follow the footstep of the Prophet for their own salvation. Mm -hmm. So if a Muslim would have to please God by following a command like this, he have no choice but to fight mm -hmm. against all people. In fact, I wanted to go, as I mentioned in my testimony, to go to Afghanistan and fight the Soviets because I believed in my heart that they're the enemy of God, and therefore I want to go and fight them. Now, I want to show something else here. The rest of the hadith says this, And whoever said that there is no God but Allah will save his property and his life. Bill, I thought Islam is a religion of peace. Well, I have trouble with both my property being taken and my life being taken, may I add, and neither robbing me of my goods nor taking my life is what I call peaceful. Indeed, there is truth to that. Bill, uh, you know, looks like we're not going to be able to cover everything we <laughs> wanted today about the Quran, but we will continue in our yes. next episode, basically, to analyze the Quran as a book. But uh, quickly, we want to remind our viewers one more time, what does the word Quran mean? Well, the most general answer, the most frequent answer is recitation. And but there are other names for it, even within the Quran itself. True. And recitation meaning that to recite it, Again, and as we mentioned, apparently the God of Islam recited it himself to, uh, to Gabriel. Gabriel recited it to Muhammad. Muhammad recited it to his followers, and that's how it went. In fact, uh, it was preserved in memories all the way until the Prophet died in the year 632 A.D. When we talk about how the Quran was collected as a book, we will talk about the different recensions of the Quran, and we see why preserving it in memory was actually a dangerous proposition even that Muhammad demanded, had trouble. basically, uh, exactly, because we're talking about a fable memory, mere human memory. <laughs> Other names for the Quran, as Bill mentioned, actually, the Quran itself claims that it is called the book. It is called the codex. It's also called the reminder. It's called the light. It's called the guide. So, but just by looking at the name itself, you know that there is certain things in here that you have no choice but to follow. Mm -hmm. It is the book, meaning it's a scripture from God. It is a codex, just like the other codices. It is basically a guide. Guide for what? Guide for your life, for daily routine. And it's also a light. Light about what? 
light because it tells you what you must follow. And it's also another name is the Furqan or the criterion, meaning it came to divide between the truth and what is false. And according to Islam, anything that doesn't jive with the teaching of the Quran is false, is false basically, even if it's coming from uh, a scripture like the Bible. Mm -hmm. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I am so excited that uh, we are sharing all these uh, material with you. I hope that you will find it uh, to be very helpful, uh, educational as we intended it to be. But also, uh, we wanted you to gain the advantage now uh, from before, at least that you have it now in a language that is easy for you to understand, and that's your native tongue. Uh, one thing I want to remind you, uh, if you please can go to our website and share with us your thoughts and questions. Uh, I'm Al Fadi, your host, uh, and thank you so much for watching us. Mega blessings to you.